You're listening to an ACA podcast. Um, good evening, everybody. Um, welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. It's a great pleasure to introduce you uh, this evening to Fiona Hall, and thank you all for joining us for our Uncom Uncommon Knowledge lecture series, which focuses on artists, their special interests, and topics that inspire their art and thinking. To begin with, I would like to sincerely acknowledge the Boon traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we extend our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who might join us this evening. The lectures continue monthly and are accompanied by a cocktail designed by our partners Starwood Whiskey and the Melbourne Gin Company. Next month, Peter Wapples Crow will talk about sexuality and Aboriginal community health work, and following that, Joel Stern will get us listening and thinking about eavesdropping in August. Before I welcome our special guest speaker, Fiona Hall, I'd first like to thank Starwood Whiskey for creating this new old-fashioned cocktail for us this evening. And as always, we thank our presenting partner, Abercrombie and Kent, for their support of the series, as well as our event partners, the City of Melbourne, the Melbourne Gin Company, and Cappy, as well as our media partners, the Saturday Paper, 3RRR and Broadsheet. It now gives me great pleasure to welcome and introduce Fiona Hall, a great friend and a wonderful artist. Fiona studied painting at the National Art School in Sydney in the 1970s and initially came to prominence as a photographer, whose work was also aligned with contemporary debates around feminism and identity. And her elaborate practice has subsequently extended more, more expansively to encompass sculpture, installation, museological display, garden design and public art. Fiona Hall is best known for extraordinary works that transform commonplace materials into vital organic forms with both contemporary and historical frames of reference and resonance. Recurrent themes include globalisation, the relationships between ecology and economy, systems of classification, and many other elaborate discourses and interests. Fiona represented Australia at the 56th Venice Biennale in 2015 with the exhibition Wrong Way Time, which inaugurated the new Australian pavilion designed by Denton Corker Marshall, and she also had a major solo presentation as part of Documenta 13 in Castle in 2012. Her work has been the subject of major retrospective exhibitions held by the Queensland Art Gallery in Brisbane and the Art Gallery of South Australia in Adelaide in 2005, and the survey exhibition Fiona Hall Force Field held at the MCA in Sydney in 2008, which also toured to the City Gallery Wellington and Christchurch Art Gallery in New Zealand. Tonight, Fiona will discuss beehives, Brexit, camouflage, and the climate of disunity within the European Union, drawing on research for her most recent work, All Along the Watchtowers, which is just completed for a major installation at chaumont sur loire in France. Fiona has just arrived back only a few days ago from France after installing this major new commission in one of the famous chateaux of the Loire, and we're, very, we're really delighted that she could join us to talk further about her work and her interest in the intersections of art, surveillance, social order, and global politics. Fiona is happy to take questions at the end of the lecture um, this evening, and our curator of public programs, Annabelle Lacroix, will be on hand with a microphone. So without further ado, will you please join me in welcoming Fiona Hall. Hi, thanks so much everyone for coming. Uh, when I received the invitation from Max to be part of this lecture series, uh, and the brief was to talk about um, uh, really the, the, the research uh, and the conceptual basis to one's, one's practice rather than simply showing, you know, doing a show and tell of an artwork, 
um, I thought, okay, I'll talk about uh, what was at the time of the invitation and still is now a very contemporary project. So um, I hadn't intended to show you this photograph first, but when Max and Annabelle here were desperate for something for their publicity, I, this is a photograph of the work in progress um, uh, at home, which is now in Tasmania. Um, uh, so it gives you a bit of a foretaste of the work, although not really, you probably think, what is that about? Um, anyway... Um, so to set the stage, I thought uh, I'd show you a photograph of the, um, the actual chateau where the, uh, the, in the, in the extensive grounds of which the work is installed. Um, to me, this looks, oh, that sounds like a bird in, in, in France. Um, to, to me, this looks to all intents and purposes like a Disney film set, um, but it was actually built in the 10th century, uh, and the... Um, English text in the little booklet that they gave me when I, um, they invited me to go for a meeting in September of last year about the place uh, is that it was built in uh, troubled times um, uh, to stop the marauding neighbours on the other side of the Loire River. This, this, this chateau is built directly overlooking the Loire River. Um, as you can see here, this is the view from pretty well where that that chateau is. Um, and I should also say that uh, there are so many chateaux in this area, you sort of realise, I mean, it's an area of great sort of romance and visitation um, uh, and probably nostalgia for an earlier age, but you realise that all these grand places were built as fortresses. Um, uh, and that, that really set the stage for me for the work that I decided to do, which... Uh, is a work that's outside in the grounds of the chateau. So to take you through the ideas, which are sort of quite bringing together quite sort of distinctly different spheres of um, uh, research into interests of mine um, that at first seem quite unrelated, but hopefully as I talk about those ideas, you'll get a sense of actually um, how extremely, um, for me, with my weird mind, they are very in intertwined. Um, so to begin, uh, I'm going to talk about bees, uh, because as you may or may not have ascertained, because they were quite camouflaged in the initial photograph of me in my studio, um, beehives form a major component of uh, th this particular installation. Um, and I... I, I from a wonderful publication I bought a number of years ago uh, that I believe is, is, is a British uh, publication in a whole series where, where each, each book is on a, um, a different um, creature, uh, from reading the one on B and uh, the um, uh, other... Uh, to give you an idea of the extent of, of, of the series, uh, many of the other... Uh, volumes are on things like lion, ant, spider, rat, you name it. Um, they're fantastic publications. So I knew from reading um, the one on bees that I'd bought, just out of general interest, that uh, the bee is an important insignia to uh, quite a lot of different individuals and groups in, um, in history. Uh, and I'm starting off now with Napoleon, um, Napoleon, 
uh, took the bee and the beehive as his insignia because bees uh, are seen to be industrious, diligent and orderly. Um, we know now that bees are hardwired to be like that. All the bees in a, in a colony, um, they're all uh, as closely related as clones. So basically, all the individuals are essentially the same organism. So in the, in the sense of uh, survival of the fittest, they all pull together for the survival of the colony. Um, this is a clasp from uh, Napoleon's coronation robe, I think. Um, uh, certainly some garment of his. Uh, and, and, and this also is from one of his garments. Um, oh, sorry, there's, a, there's an image missing. Um, I'll just go back to that. Uh, anyway, just to, to, to talk a bit more about bees here initially. Um, bees... Uh, as I said, it seem to be very uh, diligent and orderly and all pulled together. But I, I read another article a number of years ago when I was working in um, uh, a natural history museum. It was the, it was the Queensland Museum of Natural History. Um, uh, and I became very interested in uh, what insects' brains look like um, and did in insects have a consciousness? And one of the people working there said that he thought that insects, you could at least say, were sentient, if not conscious. Uh, and in, in that you can actually teach, you know, these sort of supposedly lowly organisms, you can actually teach them, you know, quite a lot of things. Um, uh, but that with, with research into these organisms, particularly what, what are called the social insects, the bees, ants, wasps, termites, they're all in the general classification of a, of a particular branch of the insect world. Um, not all of those, the species in that, in that family live in colonies, but many of them do, like the European honeybee um, and many ant colonies, for example. And with some of the research into the ancestry of the ant, it was ascertained that in colonies where all of, the, all of the individuals were as closely related to each other as clones, there was absolute harmony within the colony. But in some colonies where there was more genetic discrepancy, um, there was a great deal of unrest comparatively. And when I um, read that in an article that one of the curators at the museum gave me, uh, it really made me comprehend or, 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 or form the opinion that um, as Darwin said, uh, um, the, the evolution of organisms is really based on the whole idea of survival of the fittest. Uh, if you're well equipped um, uh, within you know, yourself and within your, your, your immediate sort of uh, familial uh, compatriots or within the tribe, uh, and, and then within the species, then you've got a much better chance of surviving um, than if you uh, are not so uh, well, well stationed um, uh, and competent, both physically and, and uh, mentally, I suppose you could say, even with like lowly organisms, to survive and uh, produce progeny for the next generation. Um, and that, I think... Uh, when the penny dropped, when I read that about ants, 
um, and the fact that the colonies that you know pulled together that were all closely related uh, within the colony um, had a much better chance of survival. It made me think a lot about um, all all other organisms really, and you know particularly humans. We um, we hold up the honeybee and have for a long time as a an organism which um, uh, is is an example to us of what you know human society could be, but but because biologically we're hardwired to be competitive in the survival of the fittest way, uh, we just don't seem to be able to actually um, enact on on that that desire uh, to live harmoniously. And you only have to look at the world now to um, see that uh, um, we're really not doing a very good job of living um, in a harmonious fashion. Um, so to go on to some of the other um, uh, individuals and societies which have taken the bee as um, their insignia, this is St. Ambrose who uh, lived in um, the fourth century and who became the patron saint of, of, of bees and, and beekeeping, apparently because when he was a baby his father detected uh, that a bee landed on his face and left a drop of honey um, and, and saw that as being a, um, a portent to the kind of man that he would become, which could be absolute myth. Um, uh, then one of the uh, families closely related to the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the papal um, uh, society in, in the Vatican um, several centuries later, also took the bee and the um, uh, and the beehive as their insignia, um, and then one one member of that family uh, be became one of the popes, Pope Urbino. Um, uh, oh, sorry, someone else put these slides together for me, and they're not quite what they should be. There's a lot missing. Um, uh, anyway, this is like a, a stained glass window of the insignia of. Um, uh, of one of them, um, oh sorry, of, of the family. Uh, and then another, another group who have taken the, um, the bee and, and most particularly the beehive as their insignia are the Mormons. Um, and my research uh, into that, uh, I read a comment that the, um, the, the Mormon church took the, uh, the bee and the beehive as their as, as, as their model for a perfect society because uh, in the Bible um, there is a description of the promised land as, or a reference to the promised land as being a land of milk and honey. Um, so hence, hence, hence the, the reason for taking the, um, the bee. Uh, however, as was pointed out in this article, um, in, in, in the ancient Middle East, there were no European honeybees, so it was most likely to be um, date honey or something similar, but no matter. It was good enough for the Mormons. Um, so, uh, sorry, these are, <laughs> like I said, a friend of mine compiled these from images I, I emailed. It's a bit mixed up. This, this just jumps back to Napoleon. It's a, uh, one of the flags that he deposited on the island of Elbow when he... Um, uh, passed through there on one of his 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 missions um, again with the uh, the bee um, as the insignia. Um, 
oh, and sorry, here's, here's Popo Bino's um, uh, insignia, which is on a, on a sculpture by Bernini at the, at the Vatican, or, or, or in Rome, actually. Um, back to the Mormons. Um, as I said, the bee and the beehive is um, a major uh, symbol there. Um, and I don't, I don't think it is today, but for a long, long time, uh, the, the beehive was the symbol along with the number plate for, for, for car number plates. Um, here we go. One of the many missives of, of, of the Mormon church. Um, uh, I'm not passing any judgment uh, on, on the Mormons, but I just find it so curious that a whole culture, a, a, a whole religious construct um, is so deeply, has embedded itself so deeply in um, uh, the, the notion of the bee as carrying um, their, uh, their whole sort of belief structure and outlook on the world, in, spun in their own particular way. Um, oh, here's a number plate. Uh, on early currency, very early currency. I, I've done a, a, oh, it's another ongoing work, um, painting leaves on banknotes from the place of origin of the leaf. Um, uh, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm quite familiar with some of these very early uh, American banknotes uh, many of which go back to um, the time in the 1800s before uh, Federation in the USA. Oh, I couldn't resist putting this one in. This, was, this came up on Google Images as, quote, a, a suggestion for a Halloween costume. Um, <laughs> there were others as well, but I thought, oh, I can't show all of them. Um, but I, I mean, I've, I find it quite sweet and quite funny, but it just shows, you know, the degree to which um, the, the whole Mormon society, social structure is, is saturated with, with all things um, uh, fr that represent these. Um, oh, sorry, these really are not round the right way. Um, uh, now... I've just come back from France last week from installing um, my, my project at this uh, chateau, Chamon-sur-Loire, and just when I was leaving France and I picked up a free English um, language newspaper at the airport in, in Paris, and um, there was an article just, just a couple of days before, there'd been uh, a demonstration um, actually very close to Napoleon's tomb at Les Invalides, if anyone knows uh, Paris. Um, it was a it was a staged mock funeral for uh, for bees because Europe um, uh, the European Union passed a law uh, just very recently in the last few months uh, to ban uh, pesticides which were responsible for killing bees. There's a there's a few afflictions of bees. Um, one is. Uh, the varroa mite, which we don't have in Australia, and uh, our biosecurity is very stringent. It's one of the uh, the, the um, th threatening diseases of of 
of our fauna and flora, which they're trying to, to keep out of Australia. But we do have another one called colony collapse. Uh, Europe has both varroa mite and colony collapse. And varroa mite is a particular tiny, you know, like it's a mite, a, a, a minute organism, which um, uh, can affect bees uh, and make a colony um, die, but or the members of the colony die. But colony collapse is a lot more mysterious, where a, a supposedly healthy uh, beehive, all, all of the bees will suddenly die. And they think it might be due to, well, a few factors, but one of the main factors is the use of pesticides in modern agriculture. And as we um, know well now, uh, without the European honeybee as a pollinator, uh, our... Um, the food bowl of the world would be um, uh, almost emptied because bees are uh, so necessary in commercial um, agriculture for pollinating, you name it, you know, tomatoes, almonds, um, all sorts of crops, etc. So the colony collapse uh, that's affecting bees appallingly in Europe um, is a major problem. Um, anyway, of course... As, as you can imagine, the same thing would happen here. The, the agricultural sector, um, the commercial agricultural sector, has, uh, is, is up in arms about the banning of this pesticide because they say that without it, they won't be able to continue their agricultural practices in the same way. So the EU is now softening its stance on banning the, um, the pesticide, which is henceforth why the um, funeral was staged in, in Paris. Um, I did have a, the little newspaper clipping of that also, which might come up somewhere erratically um, uh, in, in the, the, the sequence of images. Um, anyway, to skip to another uh, aspect, another facet of, of the conceptualization of this work, um, uh, is, as I said, you know, bees are held up as being perfect societies uh, or, or a, bee, a bee colony, a perfect society in a way that humans try to emulate but, you know, haven't got a chance. Um, uh, and because of the, uh, the venue for uh, where I was invited to make a work and knowing that not only back in the 10th century when the chateau was built uh, in, quote, troubled times... Um, were thick, was there a lot of contestation between different groups within that region of France? But if you look at um, Europe more, wild, more widely, there's a lot of contestation between the different nations in the EU. And so that was really the driving force to, to, to want to make a work about that. And also driven by um, a real interest I have in, uh, in Brexit. And I'm not quite sure why I'm so interested in Brexit. Um, I'm certainly not alone. You could go on, on Google, you know, at any time and you find, you know, there's a, there's a site, Brexit Latest, that tells you, you know, like what the latest was, you know, two, two hours ago or six hours ago or one day ago, whatever. And um, as you all, I'm sure, know, Brexit is the, um, the term that's been coined for uh, the, the United Kingdom uh, voting to leave the European Union. And that must have happened at least two years ago now. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's fraught. It's actually a, um, uh, a political... Um, well, it's a decision. 
which is really tearing the UK apart. The, uh, the leavers and the remainers, as they're often called, and in, in, in both, both, both sides of uh, uh, British Parliament, um, both the Conservatives and, and the Labour side, um, there are the leavers and the remainers in each side. So it's not as complicated as saying, well, you know, one, one of the major parties wants to, you know, wants to renege on the idea of uh, the UK leaving the European Union and the other, the other side want to, you know, want to stay. It's actually very complicated. And it's also complicated by all sorts of things such as um, uh, not all of the nations in, in, in that make up the UK want to leave the European Union. Scotland is threatening to have another referendum. You might remember that um, only in you know very very recent times the Scots voted about whether they would break away from the rest of the UK, and the vote to remain in the UK just edged over the line. Well, there's you know there's um, a big push in in Scotland now to have another ref another referendum because they actually want to stay in the in the European Union. Um, Ireland is another sore point because. Uh, um, half of Ireland is uh, is part of the EU, and the other half, of course, is British. And uh, because the border is really like, well, these days it's pretty well an invisible border, a, por a, a porous border. Um, but if they're going to be, in, you know, two, two separate. Um, uh, nation states really what are they going to do about, about the border and there, there seems to be you know endless argument about that and um, I must say that the reading re reading articles about uh, the EU um, and its attitude towards brexit and vice versa and all and all the players in uh, in in Britain it's like uh, it's like a you know the most wonderful comedy of errors um, you can imagine it's it's uh, it's very, very fascinating, and of course, it's easy for me to say that because you know here I am in Australia, uh, with no, it uh, it won't have an immediate effect on me whatsoever. Although we don't know, you know, when the UK, if and when they do uh, depart from the rest of the EU, we, we we have no idea really what the implications with us might be and whether they might be actually positive or not, because Malcolm Turnbull and also the New Zealand government are trying to shore up um, uh, much more, you know, uh, trade now with, with uh, Britain um, and indeed with the EU. So it's all in, um, in, in, in the world of the unknown. So anyway, these are a series of um, cartoons, uh, um, just a, a very small... Uh, a smattering of cartoons that have, have come out in the last couple of years referring to the whole Brexit thing. Um, and, um, and just getting back to, you know, talking about... Um, oh, no, I haven't got onto it yet. <laughs> Watchtowers. The, ne the, ne the next segment I'm going to get onto with this sort of like three-ring circle of spheres of influence are watchtowers. Uh, and just thinking of that image of Chaumont Suloir, um, uh, and, and the idea of all of these wonderful castles just being built as fortresses with drawbridge. Chaumont-sur-Loire has a drawbridge um, to keep the enemy out. Um, it's a great cartoon. Um, and I, I'm assuming that, most, that everyone here has an awareness of Brexit because it sort of surfaces in the media from time to time. Um, 
And I seem to know enough people who are really fascinated by it here and there that, you know, you can sort of converse about it for an entire evening. Um, one interesting thing for me, and I'll, I'll show some images, you know, finally of the actual work in situ that's just been installed. Um, when I was in, when we were installing it, uh, th this place, Shamasulawa, gets hugely visited. It has um, uh, art. Uh, uh, it, the, it, it now belongs to the French state, um, and they have a visual art program each year where they invite artists to come and you know do do projects there. And they also have like a garden festival as well. So the visitors there are astronomical. Um, and when I was installing uh, my work, um, and, and you know, there's some French people, you know, there at the time, and um, they were looking at it, that, at the work, you know, quite interested, interestedly, and they said, because uh, they picked up on the, you know, the, the beehive thing, um, and the components on top of the beehives, and they were, uh, they were remarking, we, you know, uh, the EU is très fragile, very fragile. Um, but they're not, but I don't think the EU care much at all about whether the UK is going to stay or leave um, uh, because Europe has got a lot of its own problems. Um, oh, th this, this is Boris Johnson, um, who's very much in one of the major players in the lead up to the Brexit vote. Uh, he's, in, he's in the Leave camp. Um, and pretty scurrilous, if you ask me. Um, oh, the, the British Prime Minister, Theresa May. I, th I think, I think um, uh, the event of Brexit is, is, is not just a, a cartoonist's picnic. It's a, it's a cartoonist's sort of uh, feast, really. Um, Oh, no, this is interesting. This is a piece about Scotland wanting to split off from the rest of the UK. And this is a, a cartoon about the Irish border. Now, this, this is interesting because this actually... Um, this must have been a poster or a, cut, a, a large, you know, sort of version of this image that was in one of the, um, uh, displayed in one of the meetings uh, uh, in Europe about Brexit. Um, because every once in a while there's a meeting that Theresa May and, and, and her offsiders have to go to to argue their case with uh, the heads of the European Union. And this was actually shown there and caused a lot of ire to the British. Um, they were quite incensed about it, actually. Um, I think they saw it as being very sarcastic. But for me, it really um, uh, sort of illustrates uh, the Europeans' idea about, about Brexit and, um, and the fact that the Brexit plan is really... Um, uh, like a like a sinking a sinking boat on fire. Um, and this this sort of brings me to the next aspect of, of my project, um, uh, because from the the European perspective, uh, 
it's it's really the um, the the uneasiness uh, amongst each European country with each other, uh, which is a much uh, uh, features much largely in their their idea about Europe being a, a, a fragile unity rather than what the UK thinks it, what it does or doesn't want to do. Um, and I thought this was a great image, actually, because uh, one of the reasons why Europe is in such a fractious state and also one of the reasons, apparently, why the British voted uh, to, to leave the EU is the plight of the, the refugees which are pouring into Europe from... Well, Syria, and also from uh, the, the, the African side of, of the Mediterranean, and you know we have we hear here about so many utter tragedies of boats um, of refugees who just don't make it, you know, to, to the European shore, um, and so, some nations have been well generous uh, in accepting. Uh, migrants uh, when they arrive on their shores, uh, namely Italy and, and Greece. Um, but then the migrants, they've all been wanting, struggling to get to Germany because Angela Merkel has said that she will accept them. And I mean, it's not, she, she, she's earned a lot of disapproval from um, a huge faction of the German population um, for her hospitality towards the, uh, the refugees. Uh, but it's been very difficult for them to actually move out of Italy and go further into Europe uh, because the countries that they have to go through to get to Europe have put up razor wire fences. Um, uh, particularly uh, Hungary was one of the main culprits with that. Um, and one of the statistics I read in, in, in researching my project uh, was that at the time that the Berlin Wall came down, I think... Around the world, we had 15 walls, some of them quite historical. Um, uh, and that included a wall between uh, the USA and um, uh, Mexico. Uh, what Trump wants to build now is obviously, you know, a much bigger wall. Um, uh, but it's always, you know, for a long, long time, it's been a border that's very difficult to cross. Uh, but it includes walls that exist from way back, like, you know, the Great Wall of China and so on. Um, uh, as, as opposed, compared to now, where we have about 65 walls already um, uh, in different nations, and a wall could constitute not, you know, like a, a brick wall, but, um, uh, or a stone wall, but razor wire. Um, okay, so that brings me to the next element of, of, of my research for the project, which was trying to represent the, um, uh, the, the, the way that nation states in Europe have tried to shore up their own position um, against their neighbours. And I don't know if anyone watches the European song, uh, the, sorry, the, the Eurovision song contest, but... Um, it's worth watching when it comes to the vote because the way that countries vote for each other is, like, so political. You know, like, the neighbours that don't like each other will not vote for each other, and if they do like their neighbours, you know, each, each, each country will vote for each other. Um, and getting back to the, the, the idea of the, 
well, now the, the chateau, which might be seen to be incredibly romantic. Um, this is uh, a castle in, uh, in Germany. Um, we just think that they're sort of like Disney dreamscapes, but they were all built as fortresses, and many of them built in the most um, hard, magnificent locations, but so hard to reach. I mean, they were true fortresses. Um, where the enemy would have had a very high time because of the elevation or the, you know, built, built um, with, you know, overlooking water on one side um, uh, uh, so that, you know, you could put in drawbridges and God knows what um, to keep the enemy out. Um, uh, this, this is quite a, a, an ancient one in, in Greece, which was, uh, there was a lot of surveillance going on in the Medi in, in the Mediterranean, and um, back in oh, med medieval, the medieval sort of Middle Age time, and, and way back further than that. And interestingly to me, um, some of the countries in the EU, like Greece, Malta, and, and Cyprus, the watchtowers that came up when I looked on Google were built by the Venetians. The, Ve the Venice controlled, because of the spice trade in the Middle Ages, controlled. Um, uh, really the Mediterranean, because they, uh, they had a monopoly on the spice trade on the ships coming across from, well, coming from the Far East to uh, the east coast of North Africa, and then the spices going overland um, uh, where the Suez Canal now is, and then being taken with ships over to Venice. And Venice actually became uh, so wealthy uh, because of the spice trade and, and more than any other spice, black pepper. Um, so the Venetians had good reasons for having their, um, their fortresses and their, and, and their surveillance posts and their watchtowers um, in strategic positions. Um, this is actually in uh, an area on the border between Russia and Ukraine, and it's another earlier um, permutation of, 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 of watchtowers. And in fact, in this area, there's a lot of towers built um, uh, along these lines. And one of the things I've, 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 I've had cause quite a lot to think about, just looking at some of these images um, in amazement, uh, is how many people lost their lives built and, and were, you know, were forced into building these things and lost their lives because it, it's, it's astounding, even today, you know, it's astounding to think how these, these edifices were built in these... Um, uh, very, very difficult, uh, you know, particularly mountainous regions. Um, this is another example of, uh, in Europe, of a, a, a wall with, you know, uh, a, a walled city with, with watchtowers all along the wall, um, protecting the city. Um, Just to get back to the religious aspect of watchtowers, of course, you go on Google to look at watchtowers and you get the watchtower. Um, it's the, um, the seven-day... Is it the seven-day Adventists? I've got to get my right... Um, sorry? Oh, sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses. Yes, I've, I thought it was not the seven-day Adventists. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses and, and the watchtower looms large still, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a publication... Um, from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, this would be a good time also for me to refer to 
The title of this work is All Along the Watchtowers. And for, for anyone of roughly my vintage, um, you will know that All Along the Watchtower is a song, iconic song by Bob Dylan. Um, sorry? Well, yes. Sorry? Well, you're, you're not wrong. J Jimi Hendrix did a, a, a cover of uh, All Along the Watchtower only about a year, if that, after Dylan wrote it in the, in, in the uh, second half of the 60s, I think. Maybe it was the 70s, sorry. Can't remember that exactly. Um, uh, and Dylan re remarked, you know, sometime later when he was asked what he thought about Hendrix's version, he thought it was fantastic. So he's very complimentary about it. Um, and as with a lot of Dylan's work, um, uh, his, his lyrics, uh, quite a lot of them are based upon um, the Old Testament, uh, as, as apparently, according to Wikipedia and a few other sites on Google, um, uh, this one is from uh, the words from the Book of Isaiah. So it's a very short song. I won't read you the whole thing, um, but I'll read you just the first, the first few lines because as I, I grew up with Dylan. Like, my mum got his very first LP when I was 10. Um, so I'm well, well in, you know, in, in that generation. Um, and, uh, I mean, for people of my age, you know, Dylan's kind of like it runs through your veins, um, actually. Uh, and when I hear his work now, I think it's as relevant now as it was when he wrote it, um, which I think is just astounding. And I can only imagine that it will, will be as relevant in a century's time and beyond. Um, anyway, just, to, just getting back to the state of the parlous state of the European Union, um, uh, the, the first few lines are, there must be some kind of way out of here, said the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion, I can't get no relief. Businessmen, they drink my wine, plowmen dig my earth. None were level on the mind, nobody at his word. Um, which seems to be the case certainly with the, the, Bre the Brexit fiasco. Um, and then uh, the last few lines are, Outside in the cold distance, a wild cat did howl. Oh, sorry, outside in the cold distance, a wild cat did growl. Two riders were approaching and the wind began to howl. So it's a song of um, impending doom. Um, so, yeah, Watchtowers, the, 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 the ones that I, as you'll see very soon, that I designed for my, um, for my installation are based almost entirely on med medieval examples, but uh, we, watchtowers are with us today. And it's, it's just made me think that the world is just, you know, the globe, really, um, is littered with, with watchtowers, with, with, with points of surveillance um, uh, constructed in one form or other. So these are... I actually wrote down out of interest, I'll, as I go through, I'll just read... Um, as long as they're in the right order, what some of these are. Um, so, this, this one is overlooking um, uh, from, from the old uh, 
Cold War era, overlooking the, iron, the, the, the border between Europe and the Iron Curtain. Oh no, sorry, there's one missing. Um, these are left over from the Second World War in the Thames Estuary. This is from Auschwitz. Uh, this is Irish. I'm pretty sure this is one in yeah in uh, in Ireland, um, Londonderry, Ireland. Uh, the Berlin Wall Guard Tower. Oh, this should have been with 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 the first set. This is in Tuscany, in Italy, and it's it, it's it's just beautiful. It's magical. Um, and you think once again, uh, how did you, you know, how did people build that? You know, who conceived to put a watchtower there, and who did they force into into constructing it? Um, I think there's some appalling, you know, histories behind each of these these edifices in all sorts of ways. Not only with the wars, but with the poor souls, you know, with some of these medieval ones who had to build the damn things. Um, now. These are again a bit out of sequence, but in researching what watchtowers, uh, other interesting um, uh, constructions came up. I, I never thought before of a submarine as a watchtower. This is a Russian submarine, but indeed they are. If you think about the construction of a of a submarine, it's got its little, you know, watchtower thing at the top that can carry out surveillance um, while the rest of the boat is hidden underwater. Um, this is, uh, well, Bitcoin. Um, uh, Bitcoin, as in very recent times, are going to introduce a surveillance channel for fraud, and they're calling it Watchtower. So the term Watchtower kind of lives on in all sorts of interesting ways. Now, unless these slides are out of sequence, it should go on to my actual work. Yeah, here we go. Um, so this is, these are, the last slides are all installation shots of the work. Um, this is it as you approach the work. Uh, when I was invited to choose a site, well, I would have liked to have put it right in front of that wonderful Disney-esque uh, image I showed at the beginning of, of, of the chateau, but no, because the castle's got such historical significance and because a lot of the people that visit want to go and see the romance of the castle. They don't want to see contemporary art stuck right in front of it. Um, so it kind of got confined to a field, but, that, but that's okay. Um, and um, I wanted them to plant um, uh, like an early, uh, like a pasture around the watchtowers. It would be rather like what, what would have been grown agriculturally in the 10th century. So it's a mix of grains and and a few other, a few other plants, as you would find in like a, a an ancient sort of cultivated field. Um, so these are just a series of photographs of um, the, the 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 work itself. So in the foreground, oh, there is one beehive. Um, they wanted a sample beehive so that they could see what they were doing. So this one here you can't see, but on 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 one face it has a. Um, uh, the EU flag, which is just like uh, 12 stars in, in a ring on it. And then a sculptor friend of mine in Adelaide, where I used to live, Tony Bishop, 
who's quite well known for, um, well, the work he's known for is this, his Circle of Crows at the Art Gallery of South Australia. I don't know if anyone's seen it, but, but uh, I said to Tony, oh, hey, could you make me a crow? Thinking, oh, what will I put on top of this beehive? And um, crows are, um, well, portents of, 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 of doom. And also there's that wonderful... Um, Nurse, well, what we know is a nursery rhyme about sing a song of sixpence where, you know, the king was in his counting house. Oh, what? The, sing a song of sixpence, a pocket full of rye, four and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie. And then the king was in his counting house counting out his money and the queen was in the parlour eating bread and honey. And apparently that refers to some political, you know, kind of circumstance at the time that it was originally written. Um, and interestingly, the French don't know this rhyme. It's, a, it's, it's purely a... Uh, a um, uh, I mean, they know some... You know, many of the other, you know, fairy tales and nursery rhymes are kind of known, you know, in, translated into different languages, but not, but not this one. Um, so it's known only to, to the British and um, to us souls that have grown up in the, in the British colonies. Um, and then on, on the far left... Um, uh, closer to the foreground than the other beehives and watchtowers is the United Kingdom because the watchtowers are arranged uh, sort of like a map of the EU, like, you know, positioned like that. So uh, the, the southern European ones are up one end and the northern European ones up the other end and so on. Um, and, and they've been um, uh, installed within like a... a uh, a wicker fence that goes around. There's a path that goes around and there's a wicker fence um, uh, on each side of the pathway. And Britain is by itself. Um, so, and then all the beehives are painted in uh, various nations, camouflage patterns. And camouflage is just, well, uh, as, as has been... Um, said camouflage is really the art of disappearance um, and when I was painting these and for the last couple of months of painting them because it just took forever to mark up the patterns find the patterns mark them up on the beehives and then paint them and so various friends were coming to help and they were just like dazzled by the craziness and the uniqueness of some of the camouflage patterns um, and um, they didn't look in the studio, they didn't look like they'd camouflage anything. But out in the field, like suddenly even some of the craziest ones do. This one in the, uh, in the foreground on the right here, this is Germany. Um, I've got images of a few of them uh, sort of individually. And then on top of each one is a watchtower made from a, 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 a particular watchtower, again researched on, on Google Images. Um, all of them from the medieval era, except for uh, Ireland, I did a, what's called a Martello Tower, which was built during the time of Napoleon, actually. Um, so on the left-hand side, it's uh, three in a row. The, the one on the foreground and the right is um, Lithuania, then Poland, and then the Czech Republic. This is Bulgaria. Some of these patterns are so beautiful, um, and, and they're all different. Um, this is Denmark. Oh, and, oh sorry, on the right-hand side, Denmark, and on the left-hand side, uh, Malta. 
with one of the very simple um, uh, Venetian watchtowers. On the left, it's Austria. On the right, it's France. A, a, a Tour du Guay, which is French for watchtower, um, from Calais, uh, which people of my generation would know if you've been to the UK and then, and then cross the channel to Europe. You go from... Uh, we went from Dover to, to Calais back in the day. Um, and there are some amazing photographs of this watchtower uh, just after the end of the First World War where uh, the city was virtually razed during the war, but the watchtower remained. Uh, Sweden on the left and uh, Belgium on the right. Um, and just behind it is Luxembourg. Uh, the Swedish one is unique. Um, it just looks like Swedish modern design. It's quite beautiful. But like I said, they're all kind of beautiful or wacky in various degrees. Um, uh, on the right here is... Uh, not Hungary. Sorry, it slipped me at the moment. There's, there's, there's 28 nations in the EU um, before, before the UK leaves, that is. Um, on the left-hand side is in the foreground Croatia, and the one just behind it on, on, on the left, the pixelated one is um, uh, Latvia. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a bit obsessed with, with camouflage. I've been using it in my work in various ways for quite, quite some time now. Um, and it's interesting that uh, some countries are starting to put out digital camouflage patterns, but uh, from stuff I've read previous to uh, working on, embarking on this project, uh, the digital stuff doesn't necessarily work all that well compared to the, the, the more um, traditional camouflage that we know of with patches or swirly, swirly interlocking sections. Um, that's... Oh, on the right here is uh, Hungary, which is quite a unique pattern. Um, and on the left is the UK. Uh, and the, the, the Maltese uh, watchtower I showed a couple of, uh, a, a few slides ago, um, they're actually now using this pattern, um, uh, but in slightly different colors. And it's sort of quite interesting to me that camouflage is a bit like a game of Chinese whispers where a nation will put out um, uh, a pattern that will then get pick, picked up by other nations and usually redrawn, and the colours are slightly different. Um, and this is just the last slide I have. This is another image of all the, uh, the pieces together, well, a lot of them. So anyway, thank you very much. I should also say, quite aside from this work, I mean, this was sort of like, well, not a sideline, it was a major occup occupation for me, really, for the last six months to realise it, but um, the invitation to do something at, at this place in France came along uh, after I'd embarked on a commission I'm doing for 
the, um, the First World War uh, Memorial in Hyde Park in Sydney, if anyone knows that memorial, that's for uh, New South Wales um, uh, and, and a, a major new... Like, like it's a memorial for uh, the Anzacs who fought in the First World War who came from New South Wales specifically. Um, and uh, extensive... Uh, an extensive new wing and entrance is being um, built uh, and it'll open in November this year, you know, on the 11th of the 11th at the centenary of the end of the First World War. And then another... Uh, First World War project that's quite different that has come along. So in lots of ways I've found over the last year or two that my mind has been very turned on to conflict and war in, uh, in various ways. And th this, is this is such a different work to the other two uh, commissions I'm doing, but I mean this is sort of quite quirky by comparison, but it's just interesting to me that the news... Well, it's probably partly what you pick up, you know, uh, according to your, your interests or obsessions of the day. But unrest, you know, in, in, in different ways and, you know, across the globe just seems to fill um, our news uh, these days. Um, and it's just been very interesting going back in time, somewhat with this project, but more particularly with the First World War Commission I'm doing, to think, yeah... God, you know, just getting back to the bee metaphor. Um, we really are, a, you know, a species who don't seem to be able to live with any, you know, with much harmony at all with each other. So, sorry. Anyway, I'm happy to answer any questions. Uh, they're made from um, wood and, uh, and I, I um, was finding the ones I wanted on, on Google Images, you know, because some countries are spoilt for choice. There's so many castles and watchtowers. Um, and then drawing up the plans very accurately with all the measurements to the scale on graph paper and sending them to a, a guy in Sydney who's a cabinet maker who's done stuff, you know, on and off for me for quite a long time now, and he was constructing them. So uh, some of the round ones... Uh, use PVC pipe, um, but, but the others are just timber. The other components are just timber. Yeah, yeah. Sorry? Is it significant that they're uninhabited? Uh, because they, they haven't got bees in, in the hive, have they? That's very observant of you. Um, mind you, there are bees flying around there because there's, uh, there's all sorts of... Um, uh, sort of sources of, 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 of nectar for the, the pollen for the bees to, to collect. Um, uh, there was quite a long conversation about, about the absence of bees, and I think most people who visit, you know, who are walking around this sort of huge, the, the, the huge grounds of this, um, this place uh, may not pick up the on the fact that there are no bees there. Um, but two things. One is uh, they, they have a couple of beehives off in one far corner um, under some pine trees on the estate. There are bees all over the place there. But if there's bees in an artwork and anyone should get bitten and have an adverse reaction and decide to sue, then because it was with an artwork, uh, that bee might have come from the hive in the artwork 
Uh, and so the um, Chamassieu Loire would be liable. But the other reason for me, which is why it's just as well there, there aren't bees, is it would be very difficult uh, to get the work back to Australia if there were bees in it, because of the, uh, as I was saying before, our biosecurity, bi um, particularly because we don't have the varroa mite. Um, and even so, I'm sure they're going to have to be fumigated when they come back. Um, but uh, we, haven't, we haven't closed up the little sort of opening along, it's like a little slitty opening at, at, along the bottom of uh, the beehives, just between the base and, and, and the bottom of the, the bottom box of the, of the beehive. Um, so uh, insects could go in there, but there's no incentive for them to... Well, no there's no frames, like no, no frames um, and there's been obviously no colony, you know, um, uh, introduced into the hive. So, yeah. So, it's very eerie. It looks like a graveyard. Uh, I presume all the boxes are the beehives. Yes, and they the are. The towers yeah. are on the top. Yes. It's very hard to get a sense of scale, especially your photos. It's so dreamy or this was a lost civilization except for the bees. Thanks. <laughs> that, that, that's really a nice way of looking at it because I, I was hoping, and it sort of actually works quite well, that it's like some sort of strange... Not a metropolis exactly, but, you know, when seen from... A bit of a distance when you approach it, um, some sort of community that we're sort of familiar with, particularly you know in in the European context of towers and so on. Um, and um, uh, to give you an idea of the scale of a of, of, of a beehive, uh, these are well, these are Australian uh, an Australian design of beehive, and probably New Zealand because actually uh, they were bought. Um, uh, they come from New Zealand and, and, and they, they come, uh, I mean, you can buy them constructed, but they come as kits, a bit like IKEA, but with no, you know, you've got to like buy all your nails and drill all your holes and everything to put, put them together. Um, but your average beehive has got like three, three um, rises, they call them, three, three sections, one on top of the other, which aren't fixed together, they're just like put one on top of the other and, and, and then a lid. Um, uh, and uh, the average one would be about sort of, well, I should be able to tell you, they're about sort of 30, they're, they're about 35, 36 centimetres wide, uh, about 50 something centimetres long and about 60 something centimetres high. So they're not very big. Um, but I've seen them, actually, particularly in Tasmania, um, I've seen uh, beehives out in a forest collecting leatherwood honey in January, and the beekeepers apparently just sort of... Uh, because the bees are so busy, they're collecting so much pollen, that the beekeepers have to go very, very frequently and just put another box on top of the, uh, you know, it, the stacks of the beehives. So I've seen them stacked up 12 high, like, like you know, towers, um, uh, because it's easy to do that 
uh, and then just sort of collect all the hives when they're, they're heavy with, with honey in, in the honeycomb inside. So how, how, many, how many sections you have in a beehive depends really on um, what, you know, where you are collecting the honey. So, yeah. How will you, de how will you deconstruct the towers and the hives? Sorry? How will you deconstruct the tower and the hive? Deconstruct? Yes. Oh, they're just screwed just... onto the top. Yes. Okay. You just leave them there forever? No, no, no. No, it's a temporary artwork. Yes. Only, only for this year. It'll be there until, well, really late autumn in, in Europe. Yeah. I, I was just interested to know more about how you laid them out. Uh, like, because uh, how the hives were laid out in the space? Like, had, did you put a, a lot of consideration into that or...? Yeah, yeah, I, I have, yeah. So, so this is taken from the, the northern end looking south. So um, they're the northern European countries. That's Denmark, um, Germany, um, So, so, yeah, so that's looking north going south. So, yeah. And I, I should also say that it's a piece made, I guess, for a European context. Um, it would have a particular resonance there different to what it would have here um, because we, uh, we don't... Uh, you know, when, when, as I said, when we were installing, you know, people coming alo along, you know, French people, and they were saying, oh, a bee, um, bees and la rive, hives, excuse my French accent. Um, uh, and then they, they, they really got it. You know, Europe is, as I said before, très fragile, très, très fragile, like very, it's in a very tenuous state, uh, which, of course, they all live within, whereas here we've got our own forms of, of tenuousness, you know, with, with our politics in this part of the world. So, yeah. Other questions? Oh, take one more over there. I'm interested in um, your thought process around the camouflage patterns and allocating to each nation and the colours. Did you have a process around that? Like, is it tied to a particular theme of each nation? Um, that's a very good question, and I was going to put in a slide, I should have, of one of my friends that came a lot to help, you know, towards the end, because it was taking so long. She, she painted the Czech Republic, and then she put on, because most of them, I had actual garments, I'd, I'd actually bought, because oh, I used camouflage a bit, actually had probably a good sort of 30 or 40 percent of, 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 of the, the patterns already with garments I'd been, you know, collected over the years for various other projects. Um, uh, but other ones I bought online, um, there were just a few that were very difficult to get 
um, uh, on online. So I sort of really just had to like look at the internet and take the pattern off that. Um, but anyway, my friend is wearing the garment, the, the jacket from the Czech Republic. And she's got a, she's standing behind the hive, she's painted and she's got her arms out. And it's like, it's hard to tell where the jacket, the jacket is and where the, where the hive is. There's this sort of like, you know, because they're exactly the same. So that they're, they're accurate. And the idea being that if you were from that part of the world, just like a lot of us here would probably recognize the Australian um, camouflage pattern because we see it on the media quite a bit. Um, and you, often, you, you from time to time see uh, military personnel wearing, wearing it in, you know, in the street or you, indeed you see uh, civilians wearing it because you can buy it readily at army disposal stores. Um, and of course there's another whole branch of camouflage which I find very intriguing, the way that it's um, crossed a boundary from uh, the military to, to fashion. Um, so when you walk into a, an army disposal store, you see uh, a, a lot of fa so-called fashion camouflage, and in fact very few disp disposal stores now actually sell um, second-hand military uniforms because most of them now are just kind of glorified, you know, camping, camping equipment shops. But yet, yeah, like if, if, if you visited this and you were from, say, France, you'd probably notice the French, you know, so, oh yeah, that's, that's the camouflage pattern and so on. Um, and particularly these days, you know, um, in Paris, because of the, you know, terrorist attacks, uh, you'd quite frequently see sort of armed military personnel wearing their camouflage um, on the street or in, or in particular locations. Um, I thought I'd take myself to Napoleon's tomb, um, partly because of the, the, the First World War commissions I'm doing and the, 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 their museum of defense is there and, and, and there was quite a lot of stuff there about the First World War, but that was very, um, very heavily guarded, um, that whole part of Paris. Um, so, and I imagine it could be similar in other parts of Europe as well. Um, so yeah, these patterns would be very, sort of familiar with a lot of civilians, I think, in different parts of Europe. So, yeah. Um, well, I thank you, Fiona. I think it's a great way um, to end the talk. And please join me in thanking Fiona for her very generous talk. Thank you. You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.